You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Hey, hey, Jess O'Reilly, your friendly neighborhood sexologist here with my always lovely other half, Brandon Ware. I got to be honest, I'm not sure what to say now. I feel like that's my my only line. <laughs> line. Line. <laughs> I am in a really good mood this week. Lots of good stuff going on, including a big celebration. We are celebrating 20 years together sometime this week. We don't know what day, but sometime this week we hit 20 years. Like it's just it's such a crazy re- feeling every year at this time I reflect on that week that we met and that week that lucky for you, I hit on you because you never hit on me. And you had your mom's purple Ford Escort and we hung out in the Escort and then basically moved in together the next day. But 20 years is just so mind blowing to me because I feel like a kid. I don't know if it's because we don't have kids. I feel like I'm still in my 20s. I don't know. Time flies. I will say it's surprising to think that 20 years has whipped by. And And what feels great for me is that I'm excited for what the next, hopefully, 60 years brings. But yeah, I I looked at that photo that you posted (laughs) and I was contemplating my style selection 20 years ago. But I'm glad that you still decided to hit on me. You're talking about the photo I posted on Instagram. I was dressed as a cat. So, (laughs) I mean, I had on cat ears. I think it was a Halloween, but it may not have been Halloween. But yeah, like thinking back to 20 years ago just feels so good. And it's interesting because one of the activities sometimes we do with couples is we get them to retell the story of how they met, when they met, and uh, what it felt like and what they remember. And sometimes just reflecting upon the past can kind of reinvigorate some of the passion chemicals that you experienced in the beginning. And I definitely feel that, like when we were in lying in bed the other night, kind of just chatting about what it was like when we were younger. And I, I'm, I really don't feel older, but I feel, um, I don't know, like life obviously isn't as I don't know if I want to say chaotic as it was then. Like we used to stay up so late. We'd eat our dinner at the convenience store at like 3 a.m. after work because we both worked in the bar. And so it's a little bit more settled. But I still don't, I I don't know, it still feels very exciting. So yeah, happy anniversary, babe. Yeah, definitely. I just want to comment that in contrast to the 3 a.m. dinners after meeting, I'm pretty sure that day we had dinner at 5 o'clock and we're lying (laughs) in bed at 9. So yeah, it's very different. Listen, it's happy hour time. What can I say? Sushi rolls are cheaper at 5 (laughs) o'clock. All right, so today we are not just talking about ourselves and our 20 years together. We're going to be talking kinky sex and social justice with Dr. Ali Mushtaq. And I just have a couple of announcements first. Uh, One is about a study. So first, I have a call out for a study for participants from the Couples and Sexual Health Lab. I believe they're on the east coast of Canada, but you don't have to be there to participate. They're recruiting couples who live in America, in the U.S. or Canada, couples of all genders, all sexual orientations. And it's a study on sex and relationships. So uh, it involves daily short surveys and I think two longer surveys and they're offering compensation. So I thought I would bring it to, to you folks. So if you have been in a relationship for over a year and you're interested in participating, you can learn more on their Instagram. Their handle is Cash Lab, like money, Cash Lab. So because it stands for Couples and Sexual Health Lab. So C A S H 
L-A-B. I'll also link it in the show notes. They have other studies running as well on low sexual desire in men, and they do compensate participants. So uh, I thought that would be interesting for you. So hopefully you check them out. I'm a fan of their work because we need more research in this field. So I should keep an eye on their Instagram and suggest that you do too if you can participate. And of course, I also want to shout out our sponsor, Oh My G. This is the silent sex toy with a massaging pearl that curves really beautiful against the G-Zone internally. Uh, They've actually been sold out for a while, but they are back in stock at iobatoys.com. And I've never seen a toy like this one. It's, It's not a vibe, but more of a come hither motion with different intensities. And it was actually designed by a couple who wanted to keep their sex play private after having kids. So it's nice and quiet and you can save 30% with code Dr. Jess this week on the Oh My G and it's at iobatoys.com, I-O-B-A-toys.com. And it's going to be linked in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. And with that, I think it's time to chat. We're going to talk leather, BDSM. Uh, We have some questions about race play and how all of this ties into sex and social justice. Joining us now is Dr. Ali Mushchak, an author, an educator, and, you know, really works to create socially inclusive forms of BDSM and BDSM education that are conscious about race and gendered equality. Welcome and thanks for being here, Ali. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And Brandon was looking forward to speaking with you. I know he's been reading some of your articles, looking through your background, and and I thought we'd start from the beginning. I know you had some curiosity as to the leather community to begin with, Brandon, so I'll hand it off to you. Yeah, Ali, when when I was reading through, I was just so curious as to how leather, how did you get into leather? What appealed to you about it that drew you into it? So basically, you know, I grew up in a very conservative, sheltered part of California. I know people like to think California is this sort of liberal mecca, but we have some conservative parts as well. And in fact, like I actually grew up in a setting where um, people basically weren't comfortable around gay people. So I started to wonder, is there more to living in this situation? So luckily, somehow I got... um, into grad school in San Francisco. And then what ended up happening was I ended up going to Folsom Street Fair my first weekend before grad school. And I started to uh, explore my sexuality. So that became like the tipping point of me seeing everybody, you know, naked or semi-naked and like playing out in the open. And it was very sort of eye-opening for me as somebody who just kind of grew up in a very conservative part of town. And I was able to kind of go in and started to really learn who I was and learn all the things I was into simply because I happened to change my location. So that's sort of how I got into the leather BDSM community. And when we think about shifting from a conservative community to the Folsom Street Fair, that's a big 180, right? That's sort of the best baptism by fire. For folks who are curious, do you suggest that they attend an event like that? And there there are events like this across the country. Of course, San Francisco is, is the Mecca. There's something very special going on there. But do you think that's a good place for people to start if they are curious about leather communities or curious about BDSM? Uh, absolutely. And I think that in a lot of places, um, they have uh, centers and uh, dungeons where uh, even like in their own communities, possibly um, that actually have the resources available to start getting involved with BDSM. So, for example, um, 
that for some folks there might be like LGBT um, nonprofits that might be in their area and they might have those resources available. Uh, likewise, some uh, places have dungeons and um, other play spaces where they might be able to sort of Google search around to see like where the next uh, place is or where the nearest place is and they'll be able to kind of venture out that way. So don't have to travel all the way to San Francisco, but it's a great place to start. <laughs> What's the name of the big dungeon in San Francisco? I remember when I was in school, they took us to it and they took us on a tour and they walked us around and they showed us all of the different options. And you were able to uh, not only learn, but try different things. Like you could try needling and you could try being set on fire safely and you could try, you know, being tied up and try the different props. Do you, what's, the, what's the name of the huge dungeon there that does the... Possibly. I think you're thinking about the armory, but uh, yes. yeah, I think, yeah. Is that it? I remember it was, it was educational. It was fascinating. I felt so safe and cared for. Uh, and I think I had already kind of dabbled in a lot of these things, but even for people who were brand new to it, they made it such a welcoming environment. Now I want to just back up. I, I think most people are familiar with the language of BDSM, but can you give us your version of BDSM and what it stands for? So BDSM stands for bondage, domination, sadism, and masochism. But particularly when we're thinking about these practices, we're looking at ideas of role play and power play and being able to eroticize different kinds of power relations uh, at its sort of most broad definition. But it can kind of hone in on uh, sp more specific ideas, so such as things like kinks and fetishes, so things that you're sexually attracted to that aren't necessarily involving um, vanilla, uh, vanilla penetrative sex, but rather eroticizing different aspects of things like objects, things like power dynamics, things like um, being able to um, uh, eroticize different situations. Um, but the idea is that uh, the, sexual, uh, the sexuality is based on this idea that you're not just involving bodies only, but you're also, in, uh, you're basically fetishizing things like um, possibly things like being on the receiving end of some kind of stimulus or, or pain versus also being on the giving end of said uh, stimulus of, uh, of pain or whatever. Sometimes it doesn't involve pain. Sometimes it involves just a sort of a feeling and basically being able to eroticize different kinds of feelings. So I think BDSM is this sort of umbrella term to sort of encompass all these sort of non-vanilla, these non-procreative kind of sexualities. I like that. I like that you bring up power exchange, but also the fact that it doesn't have to be painful. So BDSM is not just physical. There are all these different layers to it from the emotional to the relational to the political. And you are a sociologist by training. So I'm so curious about the sociological view of BDSM as, as a practitioner and as a researcher. Oh, that, thank you so much. Yeah. So basically, um, as a sociologist, I mean, I study a lot of things from uh, the, these large, broad situations of inequality to basically how people experience that. And so what I did was I took my training uh, that looks at things like sexism, racism, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and I applied it to BDSM and specifically how individuals can experience BDSM. So basically what I did was I started to understand that even though when we find things erotic, we find things erotic within the context of this, these other power relations. So for example, the fact that like, for example, someone who might, who might be a woman who might find the idea of dominating somebody very um, attractive, they're, they're finding that idea attractive because of this sort of social context that says 
that, you know, women are not necessarily dominant sexual agents. And so they're being, they're able to sort of transform and bend those kind of stereotypes and bend those ways of being. And so from that lens, what I did was I took the principles of BDSM and I basically applied some of my sociological acumen in order to sort of demonstrate how people can take some of these resources uh, that BDSM offers and transform from these sort of standpoints. So I really appreciate that you bring up power dynamics. And I know in your work, you also talk a lot about anti-oppression frameworks and social justice frameworks and why we need to be talking about these things in the context of sex, in the context of BDSM. Uh, And it makes sense from what you're describing in that oftentimes the things we play out in BDSM subvert some of these power, you know, dominant power dynamics. And so how do we bring a conversation about social justice into the kink and BDSM scene? Well, for me, it was basically drawing upon the experiences I had with sexuality and drawing upon the experiences that I had as as somebody who was brown growing up in an environment that was pretty racist. So for example, in gay communities, we have things called sexual racism, where we basically make assumptions about people uh, and their sexuality based on their skin color. So for example, like one stereotype could be that Asian men have small penises. Okay, so that's this idea of a stereotype. And so because that's the case, they assume that, you know, Asian men are submissive, and as a result of it, they're not able to then access certain sexual partners. So basically, because I've seen those experiences as somebody who was someone of color, I decided to basically uh, create a framework for people who are of color and and who are not of color, like who basically um, want to learn more and experience their sexualities in order for them to sort of learn how to create better sex lives um, from the perspective that they are um, removing these sort of social hierarchies from their um, schemas, so to speak, or their mindsets, and, and that should allow them to explore. So, for example, uh, you know, with that uh, uh, example of that uh, Asian man being seen as submissive, it's just this idea that, well, huh, if 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 I might see somebody who's Asian as submissive, maybe what I could do is, you know, sort of cast away these stereotypes and then maybe actually make the choice to talk to them and to actually interact with them to see like how they experience their sexuality. And then maybe there might be something erotic about that for me. Uh, and either they they're sort of subverting these stereotypes, or maybe somehow they're basically experiencing their sexuality in a way that I didn't expect. Um, not only that, but then for the person of color or the marginalized person in general, they're then able to sort of understand some of the ways in which that uh, that prevent them from being able to explore their sexuality and sort of identify those and to sort of move past them. So rather than uh, looking at the typical um, uh, blocks that we see in sex therapy, like so for example, things like erectile dysfunction or not, not being able to sort of, you know, not wanting to perform or for whatever reason, like all these sort of biopsychosocial aspects, um, basically looking at it from the sociological perspective where we're looking at things like race, gender, and these aspects where we're sort of going, hey, like let's, let's see how we can use uh, and understand um, our, um, our experiences from the social aspect and then go f- and then start these sort of sexual empowerment uh, techniques from there. Um, especially simply because like we, we're starting to see a lot of awareness being brought to um, these sort of social framings of experience. Like for example, um, given like what we see with the Black Lives Matter movement, like how is that specifically making us aware 
about how we perceive, say, Black sexuality and, like, um, how is it that sort of, you know, when we see Black communities sort of engage in sexuality, like, what are the stereotypes uh, that they deal with, but also what are some of the things that they can find empowering? So, again, like, it's coming from the at the framework that, you know, we, even though that, uh, even though um, we might not all experience oppression in the same way, there are different aspects of our experiences that can lend themselves to um, sexual empowerment. And being able to understand these experiences and being able to transform them are really at the heart of how I'm sort of structuring this program. So this sounds so important to me because when I first entered any kink spaces, whether it was a dungeon or a party or a conference, the spaces were very, very white. And I imagine you ran into similar experiences. Oh, absolutely. And it was interesting because I can remember a play session that I had with somebody who was British early on because uh, after I went to, I had my experience in San Francisco, I moved back to LA. And what happened was I ended up playing with somebody who was British. And while, you know, he was a good person, he meant very well, great intentions. It was interesting to kind of think about the experience of myself um, in retrospect as a South Asian man being tied up by another British man and that sort of history of colonialism that sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of followed suit. And then even then, like when I started to go to other play arenas, like it, it was always the question of seeing people that didn't look like me. And so I thought about the implications that might have when, for example, if you're playing with somebody like, so say like, for example, if somebody had really dark skin and we use skin color to judge like how, like if you're flogging somebody or like hitting them, like we're trying to see like, oh, like how red is their skin getting? But guess what? Like not everybody can see that. So how do you then gauge and solve that problem when you can't see the color of their skin? When So like, how do you know that you're not going into abusive territory versus actual staying within that sort of consent pleasurable zone. You know, I, I think that's, right. that's sort of something where I could kind of see that the question of being a racial minority in the space sort of come up where it's like, well, huh, like, you know, what are some of the things that other folks might not understand if they don't, uh, if they're not necessarily inhabiting these marginalized spaces? And so that's sort of where I developed this program where it's you know, obviously like, you know, as yeah, I'm sure... A lot of the sex therapists out there can relate that, you know, communication is everything. But then at the same time, it's like, well, what are we communicating? How are we communicating? And how are we making sure that our partners, no matter who they are, are feeling welcome within our within our own interactions? And that's sort of what I'm also driving at with this program. So this is your BDSM course. Uh, and where can people access it? Uh, absolutely. They can access it on the website that I have uh, www.gettingwolfy.com. That's my main site. But then my BDSM course is www.gettingwolfy.thinkific.com slash courses slash BDSM master. <laughs> yes, I know. I got to okay, keep plugging so we'll make that. Sure to, <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure to include that in, in the course notes. But Getting Wolfy is the, the main site. Now, you're bringing up some really important topics. So when you think about, you know, your experience with a British person, is that something that you discussed the way race play can play out, the way it can reenact traumas, the way it might be used to heal traumas for some people? Is this something that you've you've talked about with partners? Well, it's interesting because like, you know, when I talk to folks about race and when we talk about things like inequality, obviously like as a brown person, like 
I cannot leave my race at the door before I play, you know, in any situation. So I already know, given any sexual situation or any erotic situation, that people are going to come perceive me from the standpoint of my race. So basically the fact that I'm, if I'm dominating someone, for example, I'm knowing that part of the sexualization and the eroticization comes from the idea that people see me as somebody who's dominant because of that, you know, swarthy Middle Eastern, swarthy, you know, like uh, this sort of hyper exoticized um, uh, person. So for me, when I'm talking about my experiences and like how to navigate these other folks, what I do is I, I teach them how to have these conversations with their partners. And specifically, how is it that you can bring up these things in a way that's tactful, but also bring bring it up in a way that's, you know, not creepy and, um, you know, and appropriate. Years ago, I was on a panel. It was for a television show and they wanted to talk about race play. And no surprise, it was all white people and me. And they backed right down for the, from the conversation, right? They obviously, and I understand making space for their voices, but there were no other voices there. So how do you put white people at ease talking about these issues? And I, I just want to kind of highlight that I appreciate you set, you're, you're reminding us that you can't check your race at the door, right? Because I do think people will get frustrated with us, with me even talking about race. Oh, she's talking about race again. But that's because it never goes away for some of us. So how do you facilitate a conversation for for white people to talk about maybe their own fragility in a paid space in a supportive space how, how do you even start that conversation when i actually uh, talk to folks especially of color like we basically have a discussion to be like look if something is making you feel uncomfortable bring it up <laughs> um so basically it's like look I, I tell my the people that i work with it's like look you can't control what other people feel about you you can't control how they're going to react to you. You can only control your own thoughts and behaviors in that given moment. So if you're saying that something makes you feel uncomfortable, you're basically just voicing your experiences. If the other person, for whatever reason, has an issue with the way that you're bringing it up, it's like, well, I mean, I can't control that. But what I do on the other end, I, I, I teach the folks how to then ask them, okay, so if, if this is an issue for you, I might not be experiencing what you're experiencing. So therefore... I'm going to then uh, try to do my best that I can to understand that position. And so if I'm able to understand this, or if I'm able to just listen and pull back from that given situation and let the other person take the lead on their own experiences, then at that point, you know, we can then somehow find a consensus and a way to move forward from that particular moment. So I sort of work on both ends of the spectrum. I just want both uh, parties to feel like, they're acknowledging the situation at hand, but also um, being able to kind of say like, look, you know, if, if there's something that I don't understand, then I'm going to try to do my best to understand it and let the person take the lead, as opposed to just saying, well, no, 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 no. like, that shouldn't bother you. You're just a sexual agent in the situation, and I'm just going to ignore this completely. So what language would you recommend to white folks in terms of, if you are going to be playing with a person of color, like, do you recommend that a white person bring it up um, to like maybe acknowledge potential triggers or feelings in advance? Is this something that you recommend from the onset that we actually talk about race before engaging in BDSM play? I think that's a good idea in terms of the way that we start to play. But also I think that um, it really is up to the person because not everyone of color immediately wants to have that discussion. 
So basically, mm-hmm. I allow the person of color or the or even like the marginalized person to define those terms. For example, like um, I have a component in my workshops where I talk about being trans and non-binary and, and how do we navigate gender when we are uh, dealing with BDSM. And I and simply just allowing people to sort of define their own bodies and define their own identities on their own terms. And basically by saying like, look, I mean, if, you know, I want to be called mistress and this is just how I see my identity in this particular situation, that is sort of driving not only the eroticism, but also it drives the idea that you're honoring this person's identity within that specific scene. So on a similar wavelength, you can ask questions like if that person happens to find like these idea of race sexually appealing you know, bring that up with their partners. Like, is this, you know, is this okay? Like, is it okay for me to actually use these certain terminologies or words that are um, sort of associated with these racialized ideas and bring that up to the individual person before they play when they're sort of negotiating? If that is something that they find erotic, if not, then it's like, okay, there's nothing I can do other than, um, other than specifically focus on the specific terminology that the other person's comfortable with. I wonder if you can ask a a question like, you know, is there anything about your identity or experience that you want me to consider or that you want me to be aware of? Do you know what I mean? To kind of open up the floor um, and not force folks to, for example, talk about race, but to just open up so that we know that maybe it's a safe space to talk about race. Like I I think about, you know, you're talking about language and we kind of get into the territory of fetishization. Mm -hmm. And of course, fetishization with consent can be can be fun. But for folks who are, you know, on the receiving end and aren't welcoming it, like for me, for example, I kind of spent my whole teenage years and 20s being fetishized as an Asian woman, like being spoken to a certain way, not not in sexual places, but just, you know, when I was bartending, the way people spoke to me, the things they said about me, Um, you know, even people in my social circle or even within family, extended family and in-laws making jokes uh, that felt super unwelcome. So I think I have a little bit of a fear of being fetishized. Like, Brandon, I, I can even recall people saying stuff about, like, you having yellow fever, and I've got zero patience, zero tolerance, and there's no turn-on element for me in that. Yeah, let's be clear. I, I didn't say that. Somebody said that t- to me, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's disgusting it's there it's but it's also your job to stand up i i totally agree it is it's my job to speak up when that situation arises and when i see it happen too and let's also you know you made reference to i can remember family members who have said things Uh and and i gotta just say i laughed it off at the time because i was young and didn't want to start shit yeah and looking back now like the fact that i didn't say anything i'm embarrassed for that like, it's not how I want to act. And yeah, I mean, it, there's, it's really, there's so many layers. And I think that's why it's so important that you're opening up these conversations. Like, I, I'm so glad they're in these BDSM communities, but I would love to see it reach a broader community, you know, even among therapists and among educators in the field of sexuality, because I know there are many folks listening and, and within just folks who are enthusiasts of of these topics. So that's why I'm happy you're offering these online courses. If people aren't specifically into BDSM, do you think there's still value in joining the conversation with your course? Absolutely, because I think that um, these topics are very much, you know, uh, focusing on these broader issues, because ultimately, like, you know, I like to think about it when uh, we're in the work setting and we're thinking about questions around negotiation for like pay and things like that, and like questions around Mm -hmm. equity. 
when we're trying to make sure that like people are being paid properly and we're making sure that we're valuing their labor these conversations are equally important it's like how do you bring these conversations up it's sort of these communication skills that are at the heart of both BDSM and some of the exchanges that we have in the real world that are very much important yeah that makes sense and we often say that that in some of these um subcultures related to sexuality, there are these discussions being facilitated that are specific to say BDSM or kink or LGBTQ groups or consensual non-monogamy groups. But these conversations are relevant to absolutely everyone. It's not just our small group or subculture for whom the benefit really resonates. It's really for everybody. So I encourage people to, to check out your BDSM course. And again, we'll put the link in the show notes. Now, as you facilitate these conversations around social justice approaches to BDSM and sex and relationships more generally, what is it you want people to take away from the conversation? Like, what is it you want to change in in a year or five years or snap your fingers and your work is done? What is it you want people to do or see differently? Well, I just want people to understand that even though they see um, things like social justice and equality issues uh, separate from sexuality issues, I want them to see the relationship between the erotic and the idea that all of these things happen within a sort of public sphere of social inequality. And I feel like the more that we're able to address this consciously, the better our sex lives will be and the better you know everyone's lives will be. But I feel like I offer people a tool set in order to sort of understand these issues. Um, where it's like, even though we're talking about sex, we're actually talking about equity more broadly. I love that. I appreciate that so much. And for folks maybe who are feeling hesitant, or I I think to be fair, some of us even get our backup. Like we think, well, we know that, or we treat people equitably. Is there a reflection or something we can consider to really dig a little deeper on this topic? Well, I mean, I would actually even think about like some uh, some of our interactions and like thinking about some of the ways in which you know, we might have had conversations with people, and even though we think we're being you know, very open-minded, you know, what conversations have went wrong, and like what what interactions have went wrong for whatever reason, and like even if we might have said that, oh well, it was the other person. It's like, well, wait a second, like you know, maybe there might have been something I could have learned or done better in that situation that would have led to a more pleasant outcome. I've got a whole list of those, yes. <laughs> those things that I need to reflect upon. Like for me, I find it so easy. I'm like, yep, I remember that time, and I remember them forever and ever. Like conversations I regret. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and um, even you know when I've had interactions where you know if I just pulled back and if I just listened. Or if I just pulled back and actually communicated where the other person's feelings and their um, presence were heard, you know, maybe that interaction would have gone better. But in order for me to actually hear that other person, I needed to have done the work to like really value and acknowledge their position. And so I think that the tool set that I'm offering, it helps folks to kind of pull back and be like, huh, like maybe there are other factors that are affecting how I'm actually going through this experience. And maybe if I sort of identify these factors, maybe I can then have more equitable relationships regardless. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Doing the work and it's an ongoing process. It's not a one-time thing. We don't have to wait till a conflict is staring us in the face. We don't have to wait till we're in a relationship that seems specifically relevant 
to this. So I do encourage people to go and learn more at gettingwolfy.com. Dr. Ali Mushtaq, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure being on here. Much appreciated. And thank you for joining us. Keep sending in your questions, please, so we can tailor our topics to your interest. And just a reminder, of course, that the Oh My G is on sale with code Dr. Jess this week, 30% off. Head on over to iobatoys.com, I-O-B-A toys.com <laughs> to shop and save. And we're off to keep celebrating our 20 years together all week long. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to celebrating and hopefully another 60 years and, you know, let your partner know if you appreciate them. I think that is something that I really enjoyed the other night, just lying in bed and and reflecting back on the last 20 years. So whether it's two months or 50 years, I think share how you feel with your partner. I like what came after lying in bed and reflecting. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I need 88 more years. I feel like in 60 years, I'm only going to be like, I, I don't know, 80, 81. Is that right? I mean, I'm no mathematician. Oh, wait, no. And, no, I'm, and I'm like, yes, <laughs> you know, there may be a bit of an age discrepancy between you and I right now, if that's the case, because I think in 60 years, you, you might be over 100. Wait, I can't. I'm not doing the math. Okay, fine. 60 years. I just want to live till I'm at least 108. That's all. Sold. <laughs> okay. Folks, I hope you do have something to celebrate this week as well and hope you're feeling well wherever you are at. So that's it for today. Have a great one. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.